take our seats and we'll get started right away. We always have a lot to cover on these Sunday schools. Let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you that we have freedom to uh, come together for now at least to worship you and to learn more about you through your word. And we pray, Heavenly Father, as we look at the second seal and the third and fourth seal, that you would teach us about your coming salvation and your coming wrath so that we may be warned, that we may persevere, and that we also may warn others, Lord. Motivate us to be about your business until you come. And uh, so, Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd help us to think well upon the biblical text, keep us from error, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, remember last time, that was, uh, was it, three weeks ago, we had looked at the first seal. Now, remember, there are six seals, or seven seals, rather. Then you have seven trumpets, and then you have seven bold judgments. Well, we began with the seal judgments, and the first seal, we said, was the coming of the Antichrist and his coalition. And now, as we look at the second seal, we're going to see this is the beginning of God's wrath. But I want to lay out for you how it is that you can have the initial portion of the 70th week of Daniel be a time of wrath and the time where Antichrist comes to power and initially it seems as if he brings peace. So turn your Bibles to a background text in Daniel 9.27. And I probably should have done this last time, but so much scripture, so little time. (laughs) Daniel 9.27. This is about the career of the Antichrist. And as you're turning... To Daniel 9.27, realize some people try to claim that the one here who makes a covenant for seven years is Christ rather than Antichrist. Well, a simple rebuttal to that, of course, is, well, when did Christ make a covenant for seven years and then break it at the three-and-a-half-year mark? Well, that's absurd. He didn't. But the other rebuttal is that back in Daniel 9, or I'm sorry, Daniel 7, you also see this Antichrist figure doing the same thing. So if you're a good reader of the book of Daniel, you know this is Antichrist, not Christ. So this is what it says. It says, And he, this is Daniel 9.27, he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week. So remember, let's stop there. What was the week? Well, the week was seven years. And we know that from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 25, that the denomination of time that's being used were years. So Israel was in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. Daniel was aware of that, and he knew that there was going to be a release of Israel. Well, then God gives him this message that the total plan of God's redemptive calendar would occur in 70 times 7. Okay, so years is what's at stake. So we're talking about the last seven years. It says, in the middle of the week, the seven years, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering... And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. But notice in the very beginning of this verse, it says he will make a firm covenant with many for one seven. So initially when Antichrist comes to power in his coalition, there is a peace agreement with Israel, and everything seems to be going along splendidly, except very shortly thereafter, Worldwide warfare breaks forth. And that's what we're going to see now in the second seal. Think about how people crave for peace. And Jeremiah even wrote about this in his day. People say, peace, peace, when in fact there is no true peace without Christ. And so we're going to see today in the second seal that warfare will break out. And so there's three things I want to 
have everyone take away from this passage here this morning. Number one, God's wrath is being poured out in the opening seal judgments. And from that, we can conclude that God uses the nations as the instruments of his wrath. Remember, we saw that back in Isaiah chapter 10. That's number one. Number two, this is not something that's occurring now in church history. How many prophecy conferences have you gone to where they'll open the newspaper and they'll say, well, look at all of these signs about wars and rumors of wars. That's wrong. The wars that we're going to be talking about and focusing upon today in this passage in the second seal are things that are going to occur exclusively within the last seven years. Okay, and that's how we can hold to the doctrine of imminence. Because after all, how can you have the imminent coming of Christ if you have to have precursors that must occur first? Okay, so number three, we have to understand that believers are exempt from this time period. That's very exciting. If this is the God's wrath, and I'll prove to you that it is, we're exempt from that time period. And therefore, we must be removed prior. Okay, so let's begin... Let's look at the second seal, which has to do with warfare. Listen to what John says. Revelation 6, verses 3 through 4. It says, When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And another, a red horse, went out. And to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. Now, take a note of this red horse. Again, it's a personification, this red horse and its rider, not just of one man, but of a movement. It's a movement of warfare, warfare that breaks forth upon the earth. We saw the same idea in the first seal, that the rider was a personification not just of Antichrist, but also his coalition. And that's why Jesus said in his all of a discourse that many would come in his name saying that I am the Christ. And he's referring to that which occurs in the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. Now, notice here we have another divine passive. It says it was granted to take peace from the earth. Anytime we see this idea of didomi, which is the idea of granted or given, in the passive form throughout the book of Revelation, it's typically a divine passive, meaning it's God who's the one who is granting this to occur. So even though this is the wrath of the nations that's bringing warfare, who's ultimately responsible for it? Well, God is. And see, that's why chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation were so important. Why? Because that's the throne room. And so all of this wrath proceeds from the throne room. It's all, it all comes from Christ, who in fact is God. All right? Now, this is very significant that it talks about peace being taken from the earth. Now, here's why. This is really significant that we get this down right because there's so many theological errors that occur in eschatology because there aren't proper connections made, I think, with the relevant eschatological text. Now, one of the primary texts that we have about the end times is 1 Thessalonians 5. There, Paul is teaching about the day of the Lord. We know that the Apostle Paul takes his data in 1 Thessalonians 5 right from Jesus' Olivet Discourse. One time I had a summary slide in one of my sermons where I showed there are 10 terms at least, there may be 12, I think, where, that are taken right from Jesus' Olivet Discourse that Paul uses in just a few verses in 1 Thessalonians 5. Okay, so Jesus was the backdrop 
for Paul's teaching here in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 through 3. Paul said, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Now, let's stop there. Let's talk just real quickly again about the day of the Lord. Remember, we've already said that the day of the Lord isn't just a single day. It's a broad period of time in which God judges his enemies, but he saves his people. So this is in the future. It's not occurring now. This is something that will break forth. And I'm saying that it's synonymous, the beginning of it, with the 70th week of Daniel. Okay, now notice what he says. Again, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. Now, notice at the second seal we have peace taken from the earth. Does everyone see that? But notice what Paul says is that when the day of the Lord happens, it's while the people are still saying peace and safety. It is a declaration that they have peace and safety, more than likely because they have this covenant with Antichrist. So here's the point. If the day of the Lord comes while you're saying peace and safety and declaring that that's what you have as the unregenerate, that's what the unregenerate will do, well, then the day of the Lord can't occur or must occur. Let's put it this way. It must occur by the second seal. Why? Because peace has been taken from the earth. You won't say peace and safety if you have no peace. That's the idea. And so this is a very important timing indicator of when the wrath of God comes. Well, it must come by the second seal because the day of the Lord comes while they're saying peace and safety. Now, some have objected to this to say, well, when they're declaring, now remember, these are unbelievers saying peace and safety. Some have objected, claiming that that isn't a declaration of what they have, but rather a desire of what they want because they're undergoing such warfare. The problem with that is we have other texts that seem to indicate, no, when God's wrath breaks forth, there really is peace and safety. In fact, turn to the Olivet Discourse, which again is the backdrop for what Paul is writing here. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 24, verses 37 through 39. Exactly. Well said, Steve. Very good. Astute reading. <laughs> that means you get more free coffee. Yeah. <laughs> I wish Bob was here to hear. Yeah, Ed. I, I agree, and I think because Steve is right, the, the context, you have, a, you have a, a contrast, don't you? They're saying one thing, just like Jeremiah said in his day, peace, peace, when there is no peace, right? So you have this contrast between them declaring peace and safety, and all of a sudden, sudden destruction comes upon them. Well, if sudden destruction comes upon you, well, then you can't be living during the destruction prior, because then there would be nothing different. So that shows you that they're saying peace and safety because that's what they believe that they have. But I want you to see that that's further backed up by what Jesus says in Matthew 24, verses 37 through 39. Notice Jesus says, for the coming, now let's stop there. The term coming, remember, is the technical term for Christ's second advent, parousia. And again, that's a complex of days. Just as Christ's first advent was not just one day, but a complex of days, the second advent will be as well. So the parousia of Christ is the technical expression for Christ's second return. So associated with his coming was that term that the apostles never use it 
for Christ's first advent, otherwise the two could be confused. That comes from the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. Okay? Now, Matthew 24, 37 through 39, for the parousia, the coming of the Son of Man, will be just like what? The days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all the way. So will the parousia, the coming of the Son of Man, be. So here's the point. Life will be going on as it always has. There's nothing to tip people off that this sudden destruction will come. They're eating, drinking, marrying. That's not living in warfare. That's living as life always is. Now, let me give you another text. I forgot to put this in my notes, but turn your Bibles real quick to Hebrews 11.7. Very interesting. There's a comment that the writer of Hebrews makes about Noah in his day, which is very apropos for our discussion here. Again, Hebrews 11.7. Now, remember in Hebrews 11, you have the Hall of Fame of Faith, so Noah is used as an example of one who lived by faith. Listen to what it says. Verse 7, Hebrews 11, it says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Okay, now let me just stop there. Notice it says he was warned of events unseen. In other words, Noah didn't have something that tipped him off. There wasn't widespread warfare. There wasn't a cloud in the sky. There was nothing to tip him off. It was unseen. The only warning that he had was what? The word of God. And that's the only warning that we have as well. So there's nothing to tip off the generation in Noah's day except the word of God. There's nothing to tip us off except the word of God. That's why Jesus says, A wicked and adulterous generation seek a sign, but none will be given to it except what? The sign of Jonah, the resurrection. And if you won't believe the law and the prophets, neither will you believe even if one was raised from the dead, as he says in Luke 16. So what I want you to see then is clearly life is going on as it always has. So the people are declaring that they have peace and safety, and then destruction comes upon them. That's the idea. So therefore, by the second seal, we know that we're in the day of the Lord. Because peace is taken away. And you can't say peace when peace has been taken away. Then you have warfare. Is that clear? Very, very important. Okay, now, one other thing I want to point out is this term labor pains that Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians 5.3. Write this down. It's the term odin. I know I've talked about this numerous times. But it is a technical expression associated with the day of the Lord. Okay, so there's three important texts that refer to this term. Isaiah 13.8, 1 Thessalonians 5.3, and also we have it in Matthew 24.8, and then the parallel in Mark 13.8, because it's in the Olivet Discourse. I'm sorry, um, Isaiah 13.8, Matthew 24.8, Mark 13.8, and then here in 1 Thessalonians 5.3. Okay, And the reason I'm highlighting this is I'm going to show you on the very next slide the connection to the Olivet Discourse. Yeah, Bob. I don't know if you mentioned this when I was setting my computer up out there, but yeah. there's a thing going on here on a worldview level. Yeah. And going back to Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, oh. yeah. it says, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, he divided the human race 
set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Right. But the large portion is his people, Jacob. Yeah. Now, in history, with all these sovereign nations, yeah. and Paul repeats this in Acts 17, yeah. God draws out the boundaries. The way God has ruled in history is that there are multiple sovereign nations. Yeah. And if one of them wants to rise up and take over everything, the other ones beat them back down. Exactly. A good example would be World War II. Hitler was an, uh, an aspiring antichrist. <laughs> That's right. And he wanted to be that. But the other nations rose up and beat him down. That's right. Okay, so until today... God is still ruling through these boundaries and sovereign nations. That's right. And so in Romans 13, when it says that the civil authorities are ordained by God, that goes all the way back to Deuteronomy 32. Yes. Now, what Eric is talking about here is when we get to Daniel's 70th week, God removes the restraint. Exactly. Okay, and so... The, the, the nations think the reason we have wars is because we have boundaries and sovereign nations. Right. And then we're always fighting about it. But that's actually how God rules and keeps things in order. They think that if you get rid of all the boundaries and have one ruler, then you have peace and safety. Exactly. And all they're doing is building Babylon. Because there's no, nobody to fight anybody else. Yeah. One person rules everything. Yeah. It's just like Hitler wanted to. And so that's Antichrist. But what really is happening when they're saying peace and safety is the most wicked, evil, demonic, horrid time in the history of mankind is being released on the earth. Yes. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Isn't that something? No more sovereign nations. Yeah. There's just one. Yeah. <laughs> You got our vote. I just have a real-world example of that. Peter and I were at a conference a few years ago, and it was outside of the country, and they had a a speaker. He had nothing to do with the reason the conference was being held. And um, and he was very new age, and he kind of went into, you know, woo-woo stuff. And the thing he said has not ever left my mind. He said, what we need is a benevolent dictator in this world. Oh. And that was years ago. Wow. And this is from someone outside of you know, America. And it, yeah. was, it was astounding. And yeah. as, we, as we sit and, and study this, yeah. it's like people, that's what people are desiring. There are yeah. people already who are wanting that. Wow. Well said. Thank you, Bob. That's exactly right. And thank you, Christy. The, you think about what Jesus said, remember, in John 5, he says uh, to the Jews... He says, there'll be one who comes in my name. They will not receive me, but they'll receive another who comes in my name. So that's what the world is being poised for. And what Bob was just alluding to was this idea of the restrainer. That's what's very interesting is there's been a lot of discussion about who this restrainer is. In 2 Thessalonians 2, if you turn your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians 2, just start in verse 5 for the sake of time. Paul says this. He's just talked about the day of the Lord. Remember the first thing we did a great, uh, we took a lot of time and we looked at 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 2 through 3. And we saw that the 
day of the Lord, the first things within it would be the apostasy or the great rebellion. And then it was the coming of the lawless one, his revelation. Well, notice here in verse 5, it says, Do not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things, and that you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. Well, one good commentator in Second Thessalonians is this man named Leon Morris. Whoops. Well, I'll pick those up later. And what he said was, it sure is a strange way to refer to the Holy Spirit. If it's the Holy Spirit that's being referred to, why is it just not saying, well, we know that the Holy Spirit's now restraining him? A good reason why the restrainer is more than likely government, as Bob has just laid out, is number one, it fits the context of what restrains evil. It's the nations. If one nation gets out of control, the other nations beat them up. But Paul didn't want to give overt offense also to the Romans because anything said against the Roman government, if it's overt, would bring the sword very quickly because they would see it as... If he said, well, look, the, the government is going to be taken out of the way, well, now all of a sudden he's making a prophecy, what, against the Roman government. They were the ones who were in power at the time. And so that may be the reason why it's somewhat ambiguous. And I think that that's probably right. So the restrainer, I think there's a good case that can be made that it is the governing authorities. Going back to Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 10. Uh, Look at Daniel chapter 10. Remember you have the Daniels waiting for this angel to come and he's restrained by what? A prince of Persia. Right? So there's this relationship between the demonic realm and the nations, isn't there? And so finally, the demonic realm and the nations, they'll have their way and they'll become one nation under Antichrist and then you're going to have this worldwide warfare that then breaks out. So now, back to this idea of labor pains. What I want you to see is a connection here and I'll come to it in just a moment. I wanted to introduce it to you, but I wanted you to see the relationship between the second seal and the Olivet Discourse. Look at what Jesus says here in Mark 13, 6 through 8. He says, Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will mislead many. Now, remember, that was what we looked at in the first seal, that the Antichrist comes with a coalition, not according just to what Jesus says, but according to the book of Revelation, chapter 17. Okay? Well, now notice in order, it says in verse 7, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars. Well, that's the second seal. It says, Do not be frightened. Those things must take place. That's the divine necessity. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be also famines, also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Now, that's the same term that was just used in 1 Thessalonians 5.3. But here's the question. Let's ask ourselves, well, when will these wars occur? Are they going to occur now during the church age? Or are these wars going to occur in the 70th week? That's really what we want to wrestle with. Okay, that's going to influence the way we do our prophecy conferences. That's the way, this is going to impact how we understand the imminent coming of Christ. All right? Now, let's think about if it's occurring in the church age, then we can pull out our newspapers and say, yep, there's wars and rumors of wars. But what I'm claiming is that these wars are exclusively within the 70th week of Daniel. What data would I give to you to prove that? Well, there's two, two passages I would point you to. First of all, turn your Bible ahead. Now, we're going to see this in this morning's lecture if we get to it. Revelation 6.8. Turn your Bibles there. I don't even have the passage in my notes, so I'm going to have to turn to it as well. Revelation 
We're going to be reading that in this message at some point, whether this week or next week. But Revelation 6.8 is the fourth seal. And I want you to see that at the fourth seal, you have a quarter of the earth's population dying. Notice it says, Revelation 6.8, And I looked, a pale horse and its rider named was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine, with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. Now, here's the question. Have we ever lost a quarter of the earth due to warfare, famine, and pestilence? We have not. I did a lot of research into World War II, and the most that we could claim that we lost during World War II, which is the worst war, was 3%. The great bubonic plague that had several outbreaks that ravaged Europe, the most we could claim that that killed was up to 13%. Okay, so this 25% death rate of all of the population of the earth has never occurred in history. Therefore, we can't say that this is something that's happened in the church age. What we have to say is that, no, it's not going to happen here. It's going to happen here in the 70th week. Now, there's another passage in the uh, Olivet Discourse here that Jesus is giving that proves that what he's talking about isn't something occurring now, but within the 70th week of Daniel. Turn your Bibles to Mark 13, verse 14. We're just going to forward ahead six verses from verse 8. Notice in Mark 13, 14... Jesus has brought us all the way through the 70th week of Daniel. And when you get to verse 14, by way of recapitulation, he brings you back to the midpoint. Notice what he says. He says, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Now, the reason there's a note in both Matthew and Mark to let the reader understand is because there's a well-known prophecy that we just read in Daniel 9 that talks about this abomination that causes desolation. Well, that occurs within that last seven years. It's at the midpoint, at the three-and-a-half-year mark. That was the passage we read at the very beginning of this message, Daniel 9.27. So that shows us that this is within the 70th week. That's what Jesus is talking about in his Olivet Discourse. That's where the wars and rumors of wars are occurring. That's the setting. So that would be another piece of evidence that suggests that these wars are not occurring now, but they will occur exclusively within the 70th week of Daniel. So what we're claiming is at the very beginning of the 70th week of Daniel, you're going to have warfare that's so bad, the associated events with it, famine, pestilence, and beasts, are going to decimate 25% of the Earth's population. Yeah, Brian. Although I agree with what you're saying, some people would say that your defense of a quarter of the Earth's population uh, perishing. Has that happened? No. Right. Uh, they would say, well, the church age hasn't ended yet. That's true. We don't know when that's going to end. That's true. But that could still happen. And, and, and also, uh, when you listen to a lot of prophecy speakers, yeah. there's very, I, I can only name three off the top of my head that yeah. would be in line with what we're being taught. Anybody yeah. else I listen to, it's, well, look at today, wars, rumors of wars. We right. got this going on, that going on. And, and they're saying it as if this is happening right. now. Right. So it's, it's very rare. We need discernment when we're listening to these prophecy conferences yeah. as to the uh, what they would say, signs of the times. Right. And that's why I think the Olivet Discourse, again, is the passage that if we don't get that right, 
we're going to be left off. We're going to be in left field. We're going to be just missing it. And that's why I spend so much time on that passage. Recall that um, the Olivet Discourse, remember we have the question, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming? Do you remember the order in which Jesus answers it? He answers, what will be the signs first? But when you look at those signs, all of them are within the 70th week. Well, then when he answers the first question last, when will these things be? That is, when will these things, the plural, the plurality of the events within the 70th week, he says, how many different ways no one knows. So what's very interesting is when you put this together, we have no inkling as to when the 70th week will break forth. Therefore, if these are signs to when the 70th week breaks forth, well, now Jesus is making a contradiction because he's saying on the one hand, you have no idea when this is going to come, but on the other hand, you have signs that will tell you when it's going to come. Well, that would be a contradiction. You can't have precursors and no precursors at the same time, the same relationship. And so, yeah. Yep. I don't know if this would further the discussion exactly, but, um, you know, we live out in Buffalo, and there's a guy that I've taken classes from who teaches biblical Hebrew, and he actually studied Old Testament with a rabbi and all of that, and he he would agree with you completely. Okay, Uh, sure. And what he has taught us, and I don't know if I'll get this exactly right, but that Daniel is kind of like a, a, a prophecy of this period. And then in Matthew ver, uh, chapter 24, that's like the outline. Sure. And then the book of Revelation is the more detail. Yeah. You know, so you've got, a, you've got a prophecy from way back. And, of course, there are minor prophets that, I, and I can't name all of these people. You guys would know more about this. Micah, Zechariah. I, I don't know. It seems like there's sure. a lot of minor prophets that also... Yeah, Zechariah 14 is very big, you know, too. And, exactly. and, then, and then Jesus gave the outline yes. in Matthew 24. And he's speaking to the Jewish people because we will be long gone. So that applies to the Jewish people. And then the more detail is given here in Revelation. Well, well said. In fact, I think you have credence to what you just said with Mark 13, 14. Notice he says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, notice it's those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't mean anything to us now as believers because, see, a lot of people say, well, wait a minute. If the Olivet Discourse is for believers that are living in Israel during this time period, how does it have any relevance for us? Well, how does it have any relevance how God saved Esther and her people when the Persians wanted to wipe them out? Well, it has great relevance for us as the people of God because we see God's faithful to his promises. And so because we can believe that God is going to bring this time period, we know that he's going to bring all of his promises about. So it has great relevance to us as the people of God. But second, there are going to be real Christians living in Israel, and there are going to be some Gentiles scattered throughout that are going to see this, and they'll have to act on it. Now, notice one of the questions I pose to others who say, well, no, if, if this doesn't apply to all Christians now, in other words, when it says those who see this, you have to flee. Those who are in Judea flee to the mountains when you see the abomination of desolation. My old rebuttal was, what do you do if, in your, if you're living in Minnesota? Do you go to Buck Hill? Right? Where do you flee to? How do you appropriate that and apply it to your life? Okay, when you see the abomination of desolation, if you're living in Minnesota as a Christian, where do you go? Well, I think it's absurd. Of course, it applies to believers who are going to be living in Israel when it occurs. Those who are in Judea, they have to flee to the mountains. Okay, so I think it's obvious that, yes, it's focused primarily on Jewish believers. Yeah, so thank you for all your comments. Now, one other thing, where did we leave off here now? I forgot. We're getting so excited. This is good stuff. Yeah, I think I want to get to the third seal. I think you're right. Now, oh, one other thing, though, I want to point out. 
is this reference again to birth pangs. That's that term odin that I just showed you in 1 Thessalonians 5.3. Okay? So again, that's a technical expression that has to do with the day of the Lord. Okay, so now these wars and rumors of wars are associated with the day of the Lord. Are you and I living in the day of the Lord now, in the church age? No. The day of the Lord comes when? Well, during the 70th week of Daniel. Okay, let me just back up. I rarely do this, but let me just back up the slide for a moment. Again, labor pains here in 1 Thessalonians 5.3 is odin. It's the identical term that Jesus used. Why? Because Jesus used the same term. Now, I want you to just see real quickly the Old Testament backdrop to this. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah 13.8. In fact, let's begin in Isaiah 13, verses 6 through 8. In Isaiah 13, Babylon is going to be destroyed. But in the beginning, in verses 1, I think all the way to 13 or 14, what's interesting, it's the future that's being focused upon. God says that one day there's going to be a Babylon, a worldwide movement that will be destroyed. It's a worldwide judgment. But then the down payment to, to show that he's serious about this is he judges the Babylon that existed in his day, that is in Isaiah's day. And that happened at the hands of the Medo-Persians when they were destroyed then in 539. Notice here in Isaiah 13, 6 through 8, it says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty Therefore, all hands will fall limp, and every man's heart will melt. They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Now, notice there in Isaiah 13, 8, the term terrified. The term terrified there and the terms pains and anguish, if you look at the Septuagint, one of those terms, I believe it's actually pains, in the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that's Odin. It's the very same term that we see here for labor pains. So that's what Jesus and Paul are dealing with. I think Jesus is taking right from Isaiah. Again, Jesus is God. He's the one who ultimately is giving the scripture. But he's borrowing it also from Isaiah, who is inspired by the Spirit. And then you have Paul, who's taking it from Jesus. And so that shows us that, again, we're not talking about things that occur in the church age, but we're talking about the day of the Lord. Okay, now let me move forward then, to, as Bob said, to the third seal here. Oh, I'm sorry, uh, Peter, you had a comment or a question. How do you spell O-D-I-N? Um, in, to translate it, it would be just O-D-I-N. O-D-I-N? That's the way it looks. And the Yoda in Greek is like an E, so that's our I. But that's the way I would write it, O-D-I-N, O-D-I-N. Yep. Yeah, so again, that's a technical expression associated with the day of the Lord. That's why we also know that it's not to do with the church age. So, Okay, now let's go on to the third seal. What we're going to see are ramifications now of this warfare. Warfare leads to famine. Revelation 6, verses 5 through 6, John says, When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not damage the oil and the wine. Now, notice here what we have is clearly famine because you have to have a pair of scales to weigh the food. What's very interesting is in the Old Testament, like in Ezekiel chapter 4, you see this backdrop to that when you start having to measure out food according to weight, you've got yourself famine 
and you've got it because of judgment. That's what's occurred. In fact, let me just read this to you. You can just write it down. Ezekiel 4, 16 through 17. God said to Ezekiel, he says, Moreover, son of man, behold, I'm going to break the staff of bread in Jerusalem, and they will eat bread by weight with anxiety and drink water by measure in horror, because bread and water will be scarce, and they will be appalled with one another and waste away in their iniquity. Now, remember, what do we have in the 70th week of Daniel? We have a reversal. The judgments that God would send upon Israel, he now, instead of sending it upon them just directly, he sends it upon the world. That's what we're going to see, this great reversal, where God now says, look, I used to do this to my covenant people. Now I'm going to do it to the whole world. As the 70th week of Daniel, he wrestles the people of Israel back to being his own. Bob cited Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 10, that all the nations were given as an inheritance to the demonic realm. One nation alone belonged to Yahweh. Well, Bob and I have talked about this numerous times on the radio. In Acts 7, you have Stephen giving this wonderful speech, and he says, you know what, Israel? You belong to Yahweh exclusively, but that wasn't sufficient for you. You wanted to be back under the demonic realm. He says, was it to Yahweh that you made those sacrifices? Or was it to Moloch and to Rampa? And he starts listing all these false gods. So they chose to be under the demonic realm. The 70th week of Daniel's where God takes them back. So he pours out his wrath and his judgment upon the world, and he's going to save Israel, as Paul says in Romans eleven twenty six. one day all Israel will be saved. They'll come to messianic salvation. Now, they're going to go through a, a lot of horrible things, but I want you to see that reversal theme. What happened to Israel because of covenant unfaithfulness in the day of the Lord will also break forth upon the Gentile nations. Okay, now, I want you to see then this idea of a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley. That's very bad news. And that's because of warfare. Warfare inevitably leads to what? To famine, to disease, to pestilence. Normally, what we would have is 12 times more buying power with money than what's being referred to here. So, that, and that's just an average throughout the last 200 years. There was a scholar who said that's 12 times less buying power that's being depicted here. So, think about the great Marxist dream. There for the little guy, they're going to bring the little guy and the poor to have more and more. But no, instead we see that Marxism and the one world vision brings what? Warfare and famine. Where did the peace symbol come, by the way, which is a broken cross? It comes from the Marxist left, the ones who say that we are God. And they're saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. What they're heading for is warfare and famine. And so that's what happens to humanity when they try to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps rather than coming to faith in the one true son. All right? The footprint of the American chicken. I like that. I've never heard that. That's very good. <laughs> That's the peace symbol. I, 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 I have. <laughs> the American chicken rather than the eagle. Right. Very good. <laughs> very good. Uh, now, also notice, though, at the very bottom of this verse, it says, Do not damage the oil and the wine. More than likely, I think this is a reference to the wealthy. The wealthy on the planet are those that have the wine and they're going to have the oil. And initially, these judgments don't happen to affect them. But now, by the sixth seal, you're going to see even the wealthy and all the most powerful people are also going to be judged. 
okay? But initially, a lot of the elites, those who are running different countries, they're going to seemingly be exempt from this warfare, sword, famine, pestilence. Why? Because they're the ones with the swords, okay? So again, the great utopian dream of the left is to elevate everyone, especially the poor, but in fact, their dream is going to lead to the destruction of the poor. That's what we see in Scripture, okay? So the third seal is famine. Now, when we come to the fourth seal, what we really have now is a summary, okay? So warfare is the primary judgment, but it leads to famine, pestilence, and society being broken down so badly that it's now open even to being attacked by wild beasts, okay? That's what we see here at the fourth seal. Now this, you'll see Revelation 6, 8 again. Revelation 6, 7 through 8, it says, When the Lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. I looked and behold an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was, was following him. Now let me just stop there right in verse 8. You have another personification. The personification, remember what that is. If I said my car, well, you know, she's running really good. I'm not claiming that my car is a girl or a woman. I'm making a personification, right? In the same way, these riders are a personification of a wider movement. So notice death is the activity, but Hades is the location. So those who are under the wrath of God are going to die, and where do they go? They go to Hades. Now, Hades is the temporal holding place for all unregenerate. And then later in Revelation 20, we see that Hades is going to be cast where? Into the lake of fire. That's right, into hell. So this is something that is not for believers. And it's another indication that the wrath that's being poured out here is not for believers. Because they go to Hades. All right? Okay, so Hades was following him. Now, it says authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. So notice this death of a fourth of the earth. And by the way, some have said, well, notice only authority was given to them to kill a fourth of the earth, but it doesn't imply that they really died, a fourth of the earth. I think that that's nonsense. That's trying to be too clever by half. No, when they're given authority by God to kill a fourth of the earth, they die. Okay, that's what's going to happen. Yeah, Brian. And I agree with that because if you look at the book of Job, yeah. when God gave Satan permission to do something, he didn't say, well, I'll just Maybe do sometime. this a little <laughs> bit. He took full advantage short of killing Job. Exactly. Well said. Very, very good point. Yes. Very good. Yeah, so the fourth of the earth. We're going to come back to this, by the way. I'm going to come back to it. But I want you to focus on what's in red. Notice it says sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts of the earth. The wild isn't original to the text. We're just, the English versions are putting that in there. This is a direct allusion to Ezekiel 14.21. Okay, Ezekiel 14.21 was the wrath of God poured out upon Judah because of their idolatry. Ezekiel 14.21, it says, For thus says the Lord God, How much more, and he's talking about his wrath, when I send my four severe judgments against Jerusalem, sword, famine, wild beast, and plague, that's famine, to cut off man and beast from it. So do you see then that John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is alluding exactly back to Ezekiel 14.21? Now, if you will, just write down this passage. I don't think we have time to read it or to, for all of you to turn to it. Ezekiel 14.19. I want you to understand that God declares sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts to be his wrath. 
Okay? Ezekiel 14:19, he says, If I should send plague against that country and pour out my wrath in blood that's from the sword on it to cut off man and beast from it, the idea is, can they survive? And the obvious answer is no, because his wrath is total. But notice what I'm showing you is in Ezekiel 14, 19, God uses the term wrath. So what are the means of his wrath? Well, sword, famine, wild beasts, and plague. Well, guess what you have right here? You have sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. So guess what? That's God's wrath. And for anyone to say different, I think, is a form of special pleading. Now, you have many movements today, post-trib, mid-trib, and pre-wrath. They have to say that that's not God's wrath, that that's merely the wrath of man. Well, wait a minute. If we have a background in the Old Testament where it was the wrath of God then, why all of a sudden is it no longer the wrath of God now? Do you see? So now we know that the wrath of God is being poured out at the fourth seal. We had evidence of it being poured out at the second seal. Yeah. And if they're saying that, how can the wild beast be part of the wrath of man? Exactly. In fact, I'll, uh, we're not controlling what the beast does. Right. And I'll show you one answer to that. The pre-wrath tries to claim that the wild beasts here are actually the Antichrist and the coalition. And I'll answer that objection, actually. So we'll come to that either this time or next time. But I want everyone to, very good comment, by the way. I want everyone to wrestle with the significance of that. This is an indication that the wrath of God is being poured out. Now, let me give you some ideas, too, that would support this idea of God's wrath. Think about, I've got four big ones. First of all, again, if this was God's wrath back in the Old Testament, we have a precedent. This is more than likely God's wrath now. But think also, back in Isaiah chapter 10, remember we had read that passage a few weeks ago where God used the nations, even Assyria, as wicked as they were, as instruments of his wrath against Israel. Now, that was because of Israel's idolatry back then. Well, in Revelation chapter 17, and in fact, let me just read it, verse 17, God says that he's going to do the same thing. He says, for God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. That's all of the nations that combine with the Antichrist. Who ultimately is behind that? God is. He's giving them over to that. And so this is the wrath that stems from God. Now, one thing we have to think about then is when must we be rescued? If, in fact, the wrath of God is being poured out at the beginning of Daniel's 70th week, and we know from passages like 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 that we're exempt from wrath, when must we be rescued? I think it begs the question. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, it says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're not destined to wrath. Now, remember, what was the context in 1 Thessalonians 5? The day of the Lord. It wasn't just the eternal lake of fire kind of wrath that Paul was saying we're exempt from, but it was the day of the Lord's wrath. So what I'm alluding to here then is notice here's my diagram of the 70th week of Daniel. Again, we're living somewhere over here. Here's the beginning of the last seven years. Here's the midpoint. What I'm showing you is that God's wrath must be occurring here. Because at the second seal, peace is taken away from the earth. And when does the day of the Lord come? It comes while they're saying peace and safety. Then sudden destruction comes upon them. We know by the fourth seal that sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts, which is the wrath of God, is being poured out. So God's wrath is at the beginning of the 70th week. Therefore, you and I cannot be there for that. That would be my logic. Revelation 3.10, let's remind ourselves of that great promise. 
Jesus said to the church at Philadelphia, because you have kept terao, you've kept, you've guarded my word of my perseverance, I also will terao, guard you, keep you, from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. Now, what kind of judgment is this that's coming upon the world? Well, it must be, again, a universal judgment because it comes upon the whole world. And the phrase, those who dwell upon the earth, again, is what? A technical expression only for unbelievers. So I think that's further evidence that you and I can't be during present during the time of wrath. So we have to be removed prior to that point. Does that make sense? So I think that that's one of the ramifications of the first four seals when we realize that this is the very wrath of God. We can't be there for that. Therefore, we must be exempt prior to the 70th week of Daniel. Now, let me deal with an issue that pre-wrath has posed, and that is they've had a unique understanding of who these beasts are. The beasts that are alluded to in Revelation 6, 8b, we'll just focus on that. Notice John said that authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. Now, pre-wrath claims that the wild beasts here are, in fact, the Antichrist and their accomplices. Now, what evidence would they suggest for this? Well, their best scholar, in my opinion, is a man named Alan Kirshner. Now, let me just give you his evidence, and then we'll wrestle with it. First of all, he would say all other 38 usages of beast refer to Antichrist. A quick rebuttal to that, however, is notice all the other references to beast in the book of Revelation are in the singular. This happens to be in the plural. Now, that's not devastating in and of itself, but I'll show you in context, I think it's obvious that these beasts are, in fact, these animals. Okay? The second point that he would make for the pre-wrath view is that the definite article denotes well-known entities. Okay? So it's not just beasts, but the beasts. And so he would say that that suggests it must be a well-known entity or entities, like the Antichrist and his coalition. The third piece of evidence that he would suggest would be that the sword, famine, pestilence are a dative of means. It's in a dative construction, while the ultimate agent is the beast. Now, a lot of this sounds very compelling initially until you start looking at it, I think, more carefully. Turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 13. I want you to see how we can quickly rebut this idea that these beasts are the Antichrist and it's the coalition of the Antichrist. Now, notice, as you, has everybody turned to Revelation 13, 1? Everyone's there? Before I read it, I want you to see something very important in the text here. Notice it's not just the beasts, but it's the beasts of the earth. Okay, now that's very important because it helps us to understand that these are animals. Where does the Antichrist come from? He comes from the sea. Okay, so notice in Revelation 13, 1, it says, And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore, Then I saw a beast. Remember, the dragon is Satan, and and John tells us that he is. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. On his horns were ten diadems, and his heads were blasphemous names. So the Antichrist comes from the sea, which is a symbol of the abyss. Okay? So I think John couldn't be any clearer that these are actual beasts, again, plural, not singular, so it's not the, the beast, it's beast, plural. And they're not coming out of the sea, but rather they're of the earth. 
they belong to the earth. They're real beasts. I think that's really powerful. Yeah. I read Genesis 1, 24. Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures, their kind, cattle, creeping things, and beasts of the earth after their kind. Exactly. It's thank you. you know, I had that actually in my notes. So thank you. That's very good. Exactly right. In fact, when a steward reading award. Yeah, we had one from Steve Holbiger too earlier. Now, by the way, two verses later, we're going to come to verse 26 where it says that we've been given dominion over the beasts. Now, what's so shocking here is now you have a reversal. Normally, man was given dominion over the beasts, but now the beasts are having dominion over them. That's how much trouble they're in. That's the kind of wrath that they're under. Now, even the normal creative order, the way God created things, that man would have dominion over the beasts, that's being reversed. The beasts are having dominion even over them. Yeah, so by the way, I think that then that's the answer to why the definite article is being used. Now here's why. Everyone realize that God said to Israel, even in the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, that if Israel would break covenant, he would send such destruction upon them that the beasts of the earth would end up feeding upon them. In fact, turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy 32, 24. This is, explains why there's a definite article, I think. As you're turning to Deuteronomy 32, 24, you've heard over this 4th of July weekend, people say, I'm going to the lake. And they use the definite article. Does that mean that there's just one big lake in Minnesota? And everyone knows, hey, he's going to the lake. There's the lake, and it's one big one in northern Minnesota. No. It's a common thing that everyone knows in Minnesota that you do. In the same way, it was commonly understood that if Israel broke covenant with God, they would be sent to the beasts. The beasts would have them. Why? Because it would be a complete breakdown of the fabric of their society. Warfare would lead to famine, and famine would lead to pestilence, and all of that weakness and the destruction of society would leave them susceptible to destruction at the hands of the beast. And again, it's a reversal of what God had desired through giving us dominion in Genesis 126 over the beasts of the field. So notice here in Deuteronomy 32, 24, Moses says, and this is of Israel because of their covenant unfaithfulness, he says, they will be wasted by famine. Wow, we've got famine right there. Wasted by famine and consumed by plague. That's pestilence. And he says, and bitter destruction and the teeth of the beasts. He says, I will send upon them with venom of crawling things of the dust. So notice he said he would send the beasts upon them. Now he's going to do it upon the whole world in the great reversal in the 70th week of Daniel. All right? Now let me show you another one. Uh, this is Isaiah 18.6, prophesied destruction of Cush. He says, they will be left together for mountain birds of prey. Notice, mountain birds of prey, they're animals. And for the beasts of the earth and the birds of prey will spend the summer feeding on them, and all the beasts of the earth will spend harvest time on them. Again, Jeremiah 5, 6, you can just jot this down. Because of Jerusalem's idolatry, God said, there will, therefore will be a lion from the forest that will slay them. A wolf of the desert will destroy them. A leopard is watching their cities, etc., etc. So the idea of the beast coming to destroy is something that is a depiction of God's wrath. It was in the Old Testament. It is certainly in the New. Okay, so... I think it's obvious then that this, these beasts have to be beasts of the earth. They're just regular animals. Now, here's why I think pre-wrath is clearly wrong. Clearly, Revelation 6, 8 
is an allusion to Ezekiel 14.21. Pre-wrath doesn't even acknowledge that. Why? The reason why pre-wrath wants these to be the Antichrist, the beasts, and the coalition is because they want to claim that this is the wrath of the Antichrist, not of Christ himself. And so the way to say that is to say, well, look at the beast. The Antichrist is the ultimate one who's pouring this out. But remember, where do all the sealed judgments open up from? The throne room. Chapters 4 and 5. Jesus is the one who breaks the seals. Okay? If John, let's ask ourselves the question, if John wanted to say that this was the Antichrist, the beast, couldn't he make it very succinct and line up with Revelation 13.1 and say it was sword, famine, pestilence, and by the singular beast from the sea, or who comes out of the sea, he could have made it very clear. But point in fact, he's alluding to the beasts of the earth, who are just regular animals, just as God had said he would send in his judgment and his wrath. So again, God uses means for his wrath, and these animals are a means by which he had promised he would send upon Israel, and now he's sending them upon the world. Okay, so I don't think the pre-wrath view has any merit under closer scrutiny. Does anybody have any questions or comments at that point? I'm sorry? I'm sorry, I just didn't hear you. Oh, the verses? Yeah, and then Jeremiah 5, 6. There's, there's many more, but those are the ones that I just put in my notes. Yep. So, you know, for the sake of time, we're just going to leave it there. We'll kind of do some summary uh, when we come back next time, next week. But here's what I want you to come away with, that the opening seal judgments are, in fact, the wrath of God. We can't say, well, it's just the wrath of the nations or the wrath of man. No, it's really the wrath of God. That's the best evidence. And because we are proven in Scripture to be exempt from the wrath of God, you and I can't be present for that time period. Okay, So I think that that's why it's so essential that we get these verses down correctly because our whole eschatology, when the rapture occurs, uh, it really hangs on understanding that this is the wrath of God. Yep. Does anybody have any comments or questions? Any thoughts, show ideas? Nothing? Well, we made it in time. We're right on time. Let me uh, close with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much that we are exempt from this time period. And as we read about these horrific things that will come upon the planet, we know that your great promise is that because we've kept your word, you will keep us from this hour of trial that comes upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. Heavenly Father, make this a motivating passage for us to preach the gospel so that others may be saved. Give us boldness in proclaiming the gospel. The world has turned against us, even in America, but give us boldness so that others may be exempt from this time period through trusting in your Son. I also pray, Heavenly Father, that you would put the promises deeply in my brothers' and sisters' hearts, that they would persevere until the last day, and they'd be those who would keep your word that they wouldn't go anywhere else, that they would realize all of their sufficiency is found in the Son, in Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.